your dreams. Hello and welcome to Mormon Stories Podcast. My name is John DeLynn. Again, I could not be more excited to have you with us today. Um, today we conclude our three-part series entitled Inside the Mind of a Mormon Apologist, where we interview John Lynch from FAIR, the Foundation for Apologetic Information and Research, which is a Mormon apologetic group. We hope you've enjoyed uh, the first two installments of this three-part series. If you haven't listened to them yet, I recommend you back up and listen to those. And without any further ado, let's uh, continue with this interview in progress. So what what would you say... What are the five or ten, if you had, and this is just sort of just to get a pulse, if you had to say what are the five or ten biggest issues that people are struggling with today, the ones that FAIR gets the most questions about or the most angst over, what would you say the big ones are? Oh, not in any particular order. Um, I would say that uh, some of them have to do with, um, you know, the blacks and the priesthood, polygamy. Um, those are Joseph Smith and, and the occult. Um, you know, this whole notion that Joseph Smith was a, a gold digger and, and things of that nature. Um, those are those are probably some of the more fundamental issues. Um, you know, you ask for ten, I guess I could probably just rattle off the, the ten latest that I heard kind of a thing, and it would probably hit fairly close to the mark. But, you know, one of the things that we see as apologists is that really the, the, the arguments and the attacks against the church are, are usually recycling of old material, um, maybe with a little bit of fresh paint on it, that type of a thing. But for the most part, the arguments are the same ones that were being dealt with, um, you know, dating back to the time of Joseph Smith, you know, the, the true origins of the Book of Mormon, for example. You brought up, for example, the method in which um, the Book of Mormon was translated. You know, did he use a peep stone? Did he use, uh, did he have the plates in front of him when he translated all of that sort of thing? Things that have to do with the presentation of the church's history and that sort of thing. Those are generally not too difficult to answer because it's easy to demonstrate that this information has been available, that um, it's not a hiding of the church, but rather a question of what should the church really focus on, um, that type of a thing. So are so, there, okay, so oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. So are there... I was going to ask as a follow-up, uh, of of the big ten issues that exist, are there any that that you should that you just feel like these are non-issues, you know, and are there others where you think, yeah, these are you know, without without the presupposition of faith, these are a little bit harder, you know, but but these, you know, there are four or five issues that no one should leave the church over, if they have the right data and the right explanation. Are there any of those that you would just say are red herrings from your perspective? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think the, the, do you the think they question... all are, or do you think... No, okay. no, absolutely not. I think that there, that there are legitimate, but I think that there are some that are, at least in my mind, are, are more easily dealt with. So what are, um, what are those? Well, the, for example, the, you know, Joseph Smith is a gold digger. Right. Um, you know... <laughs> Look, if you look back at the history in those times and, and what was common practice, it was an employment that he was doing. Uh, you know, people, people using divining rods for looking for water today. That happens in pretty much everywhere right now. You know, people still use divining rods to find water. Um, and there's people that will claim that it works. You know, I don't know. I've, I've not done it myself. But, um, you know, those types of things, I kind of put that in the, in the okay. same grouping. Okay, what else? Any, any others that you see as red herrings? 
Um, well, I think that the, for example, the accounts of the of the first vision. Um, I think that that's easily dealt with. Okay. Uh, you know, the fact that Joseph Smith told it different ways to different groups of people or, and he had a different purpose is perfectly understandable. Okay. Any others? I mean, this is good. I, I like it. I like you doing this. So are there any others? I'm just, I, I like to hear things like this. Well, um, I guess. Like for me, to... the Masonic thing. Greg, oh, Greg Masonic Carney thing killed is a that. Non-issue for me. He yeah, killed that a... in my mind. Yeah, that's a that's a non-issue. You know, it's kind of funny because a lot of these things, when you hear them for the first time, they're because they're new, they tend to be more sensationalistic to us. Once you get into the information, see, that's the thing is that it's easy for somebody to throw out an argument, and this is where the apologist's job is very difficult. It's easy for somebody to throw out an argument and say, you know, uh, oh, I bet you didn't know this. No, I didn't. I didn't know that. Yeah. And they raise this doubt, and oftentimes the response to it isn't just a you know a, a two sentence response. Sometimes it's a few paragraphs or more pages, in order to understand the context and things like that. Um, you know, the so you know the 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 Masonic the Masonic thing is a is a non-issue for me. Okay, so let me then flip the flip the question. Are you know first of all, is an apologist allowed to say, yeah, that's a that's a problem or yeah this one i struggle with or you know and so that's the first question can an apologist even do that or is that sort of anathema to what you're allowed to do or supposed to do with that title and then are you comfortable sharing with us any of the issues that that you do either struggle with or don't understand don't have a good answer for or just decide to put on a shelf can you be that candid and that open or are you not allowed to by virtue of your position? <laughs> I, you know, I don't want to be somebody that sits here and sows seeds of doubt for people. No, so I'm not asking really, you to do that. I'm not. Asking no, no, you I to understand. I understand. I, I'm going to answer your question, but I'm, I'm couching it. Um, I don't want to be somebody that, um, that sows seeds of doubt for people. Right. Um, I do have a firm belief in, in the restoration of the gospel and, and that sort of thing. Um, the, but that's not to say that there aren't things that are legitimate legitimate questions okay or legitimate issues and that's not to say also that the fact that they're legitimate means that they rise to the level that someone should leave the church because of it right well obviously because um, you haven't right so for example the issues that i think are um are legitimate for example mountain meadows massacre was a horrible tragedy um i i think that uh the people that were involved in it regret it and I think that they will be judged for it. Right. I think that there are circumstances surrounding it that make it understandable, sure, but not defensible. Right. I think that, um, but you know, having done that, what I've heard, and, and I understand that there's publications that are expected out next year, which will address it directly. But having said all of that, um, you know, the Mountain Meadows massacre. Uh, one of the great criticisms is that Brigham Young was involved from the very beginning. I don't believe that the evidence points in that direction at all. I think that Brigham Young's communications to um, to the saints down there and uh, in that area was pretty clear. It was just late that you know let them pass unmolested, right. and unfortunately they didn't do that. Can I understand why? Yes. Can I justify it? No. Okay. Is that reason why I would leave the church? Of course not. Yeah. Okay. Any any others that you feel comfortable? Uh, blacks with? in the priesthood. Um, I struggled with, you know, the notion as to as to the reasons why, um, not the reasons, 
you know, the real reasons as to why it was, but some of the justifications and the reasons that were put forth by the leaders, uh, by certain leaders of the, the church at the to time. Ex- the attempts to explain. The attempts to explain. Yeah. And I think that, that, in fact, that's one of the reasons why I think that, you know, the brethren don't go out and say, well, here's the reasons. You know, if you look at that issue alone, the, that's that should be justification enough why if, if they're going to come out with a policy and they're going to state it, stick with the policy, don't worry about the explanations, move forward, and let people like us to stick our foot, feet in our mouths, Don't <laughs> not the brethren. Right. Right. Okay. And it, okay. Those are those are good. And, it, and, it, and the Book of Mormon stuff or the polygamy stuff. Well, you know, we, you talked about stuff that, that's easily answerable. You know, I'm not going to lose sleep over, right. um, for example, the, the translation of, uh, you know, King James language in the Book of Mormon. Um, you know, I think that there's a dozen plausible explanations as to why um, there's King James language Sure, in the Book of Mormon, sure. and I'm okay with that. Well, okay. So, um, do you think that someone, um, and this is just, a, I know it's going to seem a bizarre question. Do you think it's it's valid for someone who wants to be a Mormon, who even believes they have a testimony, but doesn't necessarily have a conviction that the Book of Mormon is historical? Do you think that's a tenable position that God would be okay with, or do you think that person's sort of under condemnation or in a really uh, troubled spot. And do you know any apologists who may even have that position that that the Book of Mormon may not necessarily be historical, but can still be inspired, but not historical? Um, I do not ascribe to the notion that the Book of Mormon is inspired, but not historical. Um, right, I sure. think that, you know, if you read Given's latest book, By the Hand of Mormon, for example, um, you know, she she did a fabulous job on that book. By the way, it was she she I think she did um, a very good job at presenting um, arguments against and the arguments for and what I believe is a very even-handed way. In fact, if you were to if you were to look at a, a work that openly kind of shows the arguments against and deals with them, hers would could possibly be a very good role model right. um, for if you wanted to go out and do that with other issues besides the Book of Mormon, but. Um, more specifically, you know, the, um, I lost my train of thought here. Um, you're just talking about the Book of Mormon and, and historicity. Oh, the historicity of the, of the book, of the Book of Mormon. Um, one of the things that she points out in her book is, and I think it's a very good point that she makes, is that Joseph Smith claimed, um, believability in his, first vision and in the restoration of the gospel um, by pointing towards the Book of Mormon and saying that look look at what came forth because of this you know the Lord used me as his instrument and the Book of Mormon kind of became his test proof so you have to ask yourself the question if the Book of Mormon and it, the prophets for, for years have said you know we, 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 we stand or we fall on the Book of Mormon right. if the Book of Mormon is true um, then the church is true. If the Book of Mormon is false, then the church is false. So is it possible for the Book of Mormon to be inspired fiction? In my mind, no. Right. Okay. That's fair. Um, so if you think about those that you know of who have left the church, what do you see as 
the tr- the the mental process that they, get, they go through that leads them out? Do you sympathize with them at all? Do you empathize with them? Do you understand uh, how that happens? And how would you, if you were to speak to someone before they're about to take that jump, or even if they've already taken it and jumped, do you have any advice or thoughts to offer um, that could either help someone make that decision, help some keep someone from making that decision, or bring them back? You know, what what advice? How do you do? You sympathize with an ex or an anti-Mormon? Uh, how do you see it happening to them? And what advice would you give to them to to reconsider? Well, you you actually asked a, a very pertinent question, kind of prior to that string of questions, actually, where you asked, um, you know, do I understand all the reasons? And I I would be dishonest if I said that I did understand them all. I don't understand them all. I I would like to understand. I would like to have a better view. Um, that's not to say that I don't understand why some people leave. That's not to say that I don't understand the the, the processes. Um, you know, I I was corresponding with somebody who told share with me um, some very difficult things that happened to them um, by individuals who were in positions of responsibility and authority over them, and my heart was wrenched. You right. know, I mean, I it 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 really affected me. I thought, you know, with as I think back to you know my entrance into the church and as as I was developing in my faith. If these things had happened to me, um, it it undoubtedly would have shattered my perspective and and my faith at least from an indivi- from the perspective of these individuals. And you know, could I see myself saying, "Oh my goodness, I can't continue to be associated with this"? Yes, I could. Right. So can I understand? In sometimes sometimes I can, sometimes I can't. I'd, I'd like to understand better. I'd like to know what it is that causes people to leave. My, my heart is broken when I see it happen. Some instances I think that people leave the church to justify to themselves why they don't want to continue, whether it be because they feel that the church is controlling and domineering, that whether or not they feel that um, you know the, the church's standards are, are too stringent, or um, somehow because of the church's standards that the church is judgmental and and is focused on inflicting guilt rather than on you know inviting people to God's grace and that sort of thing. I think that when when individuals um, go through and look for reasons for doubt, then I have a more difficult time understanding. Um, so you know, I guess a lot of it has to do with the perspective that they're coming from within themselves, right. and you know. What, what 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 motivations they have, and that's something that I can't get into. I can't get into somebody's head and heart. Sure, uh, I, I can't tell you. I've t- I've talked to enough people who are struggling to know that there's a huge sensitivity um, about this common perception that someone who leaves the church does it because they want to have illicit sex, or because they're gay, right. or because they want to drink alcohol, or smoke marijuana, or whatever. That's something that a lot of people find really offensive, and I, I'm, I know that has to exist, right? But, sure. but most of the people that I talk to, it's very simple. They were taught sort of things were one certain way, and then they find out things are very different. Either that, or they have something really bad happen to them. 
Yeah, I would say that, that the reason why people leave the church generally, my experience, is a violation of trust. And whether yeah. that violation yep, yep. of trust comes because a person should have conducted themselves in a particular way and didn't, um, physical, emotional, or sexual, or whatever type of abuse from, from a position of authority or strength, um, or whether that violation of trust is more perceived in instances like we've already addressed, such as, you know, that, uh, hey, there's, inst there's issues of church history which is not proclaimed by the church, but which are out there, and they didn't know about it. And then when they begin to hear about it, it causes them, you know, to, to feel like there's been some there's been some um, deceit that's taken place wherein, you know, in reality it wasn't the intent or the purpose of the church to deceive. It's been out there all along, but yet the perception, and that's a valid perception, you know, do I sympathize with it? In a way I do because there's, you know, I can understand how that would affect a person. Right. In a way I don't because it has not caused me to leave. Right. I, I feel very fortunate in that. I think that one of the things too, if I might interject here, and I, I know that we've we've run long here, but um, one of the things that, that I think is a question that you haven't asked that I want to answer anyway is <laughs> if I had advice to somebody who had a friend or a family member who was thinking of leaving. No, I just I, asked. I think, that's what I just asked actually. Oh, I thought you asked. <laughs> no, I thought your question was if I knew somebody was leaving, what advice would I give the person that's leaving? Oh, okay. My advice is to the person who has a friend that's going to leave. If you have a, a daughter or a son or somebody like that, oh, that a is counselor, questioning, a what counselor. advice would I give to that person? Okay, right? okay, okay. Because I'll tell you one thing that I do see that I think happens, which saddens me a great deal, and that is that for whatever reason, when a person makes exercises their agency and chooses to leave, when we apply uh, unrighteous dominion and pressure upon them, right. And belittle them, or belittle their experience, or their their emotions, or their feelings, and tell them they're wrong, or we attribute motive to them, such as, oh, well, you just want to go out and sin. You know, you bring up a very good point. I, you know, a lot of people leave the church, and they have, it's not an issue of sin for them. They're good, faithful members from that standpoint. You know, they keep the standards. They don't drink, smoke, you know, have illicit sex, and all that kind of stuff. They leave for other reasons. But when a person chooses to leave, the reaction of the leaders, the reactions of their family can do more harm than the original reason why they chose to leave. Yeah. And that for me is very unfortunate. So I think that there is a message to be given to people who are, are dealing with and around those people who are choosing to leave. And my first message would be, number one, um, acknowledge that these people have a right to feel what they, what they feel, to think what they think. Um, give them the freedom to have doubt in the sense that you don't have to tell them that, well, if you're doubting, you know, you're an evil person, okay? I think that it's natural for us to have questions and doubts. It's what, we, what do we do with them? What do we do with them from that point? And if we're, if we're too harsh in our reaction, we don't leave room for that person who's having the doubts to come back and to find the answers. Oftentimes what we do is, our, per, our personalities come into play and, um, you know, histories of relationships and, and prejudices and biases come into play and people harden into positions. And when that happens, minds close, eyes close, hearts close, and people oftentimes then leave the church and then it becomes a, a, a seeking of ju continued justification for why they left. And I think they begin to heap upon themselves, you know, even the, the, the farcical reasons, you know, for why they shouldn't believe. And so 
you know, a, a core, a key message I would give is, you know, don't be critical of the people. Tell them that it's okay to have questions. Tell them that there are answers. Um, let them know that you love them and that you're going to love them anyway, no matter what happens. As they, as they go through it, if they choose not to follow your advice, it's okay. You know, it's, it's, it's heart-wrenching, but it's okay because that's their choice. You can only do what you can do. Um, I would encourage them to take and, and break down usually a person's question. Our experience is, is that a person's question is comes from a very specific um, approach. For example, somebody might bring up five issues about Joseph Smith, and what they're really questioning is whether or not Joseph Smith was morally qualified as a prophet. Okay, polygamy is an issue. They might uh, bring up the issue of of the the peep stones and th things like that, right? They're the gold digging. Yep. And so they bring up these issues to question Joseph Smith. So it's a question of Joseph Smith. Other times it's a question of the Book of Mormon. And so the the answer that needs to be given as an, from an apologist is not only to give answers to, to a number of those questions, but also on top of those answers to give additional reason to believe, to, to help reinstill that faith. You know, I gained a testimony of the Book of Mormon because of the teachings that it had. Not because you know there's chiasmus, right? Okay, and so um, you know the the message of the Book of Mormon is is vastly important. When you read the Book of Mormon, how does it make you feel? What are the teachings? What are the sublime messages that you get out of it? You know, I read I read King Benjamin's talk, and every time I read it, I'm brought to tears by the message of compassion that was delivered when when he gave his talk. Um, you know all of these types of things. I think that it's important to not only give response, to break it down and help people understand: Is the Book of Mormon true? All right, you've got questions about the Book of Mormon because of these five questions that have been answered. We'll address those questions, but let's go to the big one: Is is the Book of Mormon true? Why? How would we know that it's true? And address it not just from the standpoint of those questions, but from the standpoint of the larger picture of the of the whole whole issue of the Book of Mormon. Right. And same thing with Joseph Smith, same thing with the modern-day prophet or anything else that somebody wants to attack. Very good. No, I, I'd say shout hallelujah to your comments about how to treat. I, I, it is sad how marriages get destroyed and families get broken up over people leaving. That's one huge motivator for me to try and build bridges because it tears me apart to see that happen. I do think that a lot of members of the church, you know, don't know a lot of the history or doctrine historically and are maybe scared by it. And so a natural reaction if somebody's getting into that stuff is just to try and wall yourself off because you don't want to learn stuff that's going to make you scared too. So I, sometimes I feel like that may be a bit at the heart of why some of that uh, separation happens, but I sure hope it discontinues as much as possible. Yeah, it could be. So, um, I just have a couple really quick questions. You can answer them really quickly if you want. Some of them are pretty quick. Do you guys have any podcast plans at all? Seems like you guys would be well served to do a podcast. You know, um, since you asked me, invited me to come on, uh, we began those discussions, and I would not be surprised if sometime in the not too distant future we started doing some podcasts. Very I think good. it would be helpful. Me too. That's good to hear. Um, how do you do? You have any quick thoughts or comments about Sunstone and Dialogue as as publications, as symposium, their role in the church? 
do you condemn them broadly? Do you think, oh, there's some good and some bad? Or do you think, hey, they're great, we're sure glad they're in the community? Do you have any thoughts or opinions on that, either as a person or as a representative of FAIR? Um, well, FAIR is not anything like either of those two publications. I think that there's good that comes out of those publications, and I think that there's um, some things that are that are damaging. Um, on a couple of occasions, I've read some things that I, I wholeheartedly disagreed with. As a forum, a place for individuals who are seeking a voice, um, is there is there a place for that? Uh, yeah, I suppose that there is. Cool. Okay. Um, you know uh, the but you know I don't see I don't criticize them. Um, there's there's we're, we actually link a, on a number of occasions from the fair website, for example, to dialogue and and to Sunstone. So. Um, you know, like I said, there's good in them, but um, it's it's not it doesn't serve the same purpose that Fair does. And Fair's purpose is really to concentrate on um, providing answers from a faithful perspective. Right. And um, that's a limitation that we place on ourselves that um, Sunstone and Fair don't place on themselves. And dialogue, yeah. Yeah. Or excuse me, dialogue. Uh, I I've heard it, and thank you for answering that. I, I'm I've just been nominated to the board of Sunstone, but I don't. I don't believe in factions and enemies, and so I'm. I like to hear as much bridge building as possible because I. That's what I think is going to help us get uh, to where we need to go. But mm -hmm. um, I, I've heard a little bit discussed about a fair wiki. Is there anything you can do? You know or can talk about that? Because I'm very can, fascinated about that. Yeah, we're working on one. And what what what's it about? How's it structured? When's it going to be released? What's it going to look like? Do you know? Can you It'll tell be us? released when it's. Reasonably well <laughs> advanced, um, you know. We're we're a group of of um, volunteers, and you know, um, for those I don't know how many people are familiar with a wiki, but really what a wiki is is it's a it's a place where you it's kind of like an encyclopedia, where people can collaborate on the on the answers, and um, we're using it um, right now to help gather responses and things like that to be able to provide good links. We're putting it together. It's it's um, at an early stage. Um, we've got a number of answers that are in it, but we're not comfortable that there's been sufficient peer review in order to put out even, you know, the few articles and things that are already in there. But you know, our our view of how it can be used is an optimistic one. We think that people will be able to go on to it and be able to get a quick overview as to what the arguments. Um, a particular argument against the church might be um, what the answer is, what the relevance, additional reading that's recommended, being able to link into more detailed articles. Right. So it's kind of you know we we see it as kind of being a if you if you were peeling the onion so to speak it would be the first you know the first layer of the onion with links to all the different layers down. And how does this differ from the directory that's already on fair right now? It's going to be much more easily searchable. Um, it's going to have um, a lot more of a collaborative effort to it. There's not going to be any individual who's authored it per se. So there will be inputs from a lot of different people from a lot of different disciplines. And it will link to a number of articles that are out there. So, you know, the for example, you might have an article, let's just take the issue of polygamy, we might have a very good article on one aspect of polygamy which goes into a great deal of detail that talks about the experiences of um, of women in a, in in who who were involved in polygamy and that sort of thing, and maybe takes that particular uh, perspective, but is only a one sentence mention 
in the wiki itself because the wiki is taking a, a much higher view. It's not going into the levels of detail. So, you know, there's a number of things that, um, when approached, might require a greater degree of detail if it's an issue for somebody. But, you know, from an overview of the issue and the question and us addressing it requires a more succinct answer. Right. The wiki provides that succinct answer. So I I wanted I have always wanted to do something similar. Um, so I'm I'm excited to, to see this when it comes out and uh, and to well join fair. We'd love to have you contribute. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm totally open to that. Um, let Let me just say, if I can give you one piece of humble, unsolicited advice. Sure. You're think, welcome. Um, when when you know, let's take the Masonic issue. Uh, you know, the thing that you're normally told growing up in the church to counter that is, oh, there were Masons who worked on Solomon's temple. They snuck in, saw the ceremony, preserved it through the Masonic ritual. Then that's how the Lord communicated it to Joseph, right? Mm -hmm. Something that historically is pretty much unfair, you know, un not factual. And even a Mason will tell you that's not how they see it. And, and that's what Greg said. It was just so beautiful for me to have him go, this is the common perception that's broadly believed and taught in the church, and it's wrong. But, you know, here's the facts, and then here's why um, it, it shouldn't trouble you. Being able to say, call, call a spade a spade, acknowledge something that's been taught that's wrong, or acknowledge something that's difficult and say, yeah, you know, yes, Joseph Smith denied that he practiced polygamy or, you know, whatever the issue is. Yes, it's a fact, but here's how you can deal with it. That is just so, it's like a, it's like being in a shower. It's so cleansing and, and sanctifying. I hope that you guys will try really hard and if I or others of us join with you to be willing to just call a spade a spade, but then talk about why it shouldn't be a problem versus any attempt to hide or cover up or justify unnaturally a position on something. Does that make sense? It does, and I appreciate the comment. I think that, uh, you know, just I can tell you from my perspective, the individuals that are um, directing the affairs of um, FAIR are focused on that very objective of um, providing right answers, not necessarily answers that sound right. Yeah, another example is the people practice polygamy because there were more women than men on the frontier. It's not true. Right. But to openly say, this is generally taught, it's wrong, now let's talk about the real situation. It's just so refreshing to me. So anyway, maybe it's troubling others, so I'm self-serving of a request, but I just wanted to make my little vote there. I appreciate it very much. Okay, um, two last questions. Do you, and this is just a personal interest more than anything else, but I've done a lot of reading about the Leonard Arrington years mm -hmm. are, and, and the Lowell Benyon era and the T. Edgar Lyon era um, in the 40s and 50s and then the, the Leonard Arrington years in the 70s. Do you or the fair people, how, how aware are you of that history of what happened to Leonard Arrington and Lowell Benyon and, and those guys? Do you view them favorably? Do you view that as a shining moment in the church, as a dark, you know, tragedy in church history. How do you look upon folks like Leonard Arrington and Lowell Binion in fair? Well, I'm, I'm not particularly myself all that versed in 
the controversies that you're referring to. Um, I, I, I'm vaguely aware that there that there were questions about um, in terms of how they tried to treat the history of the church and that sort of thing, and some of the reactions. Um, I don't know enough about it to comment. I would I would only say that um, as in as far as the brethren have, um, you know, the, the brethren. This, this is a church that was born of persecution. And I think that for, because of that, the brethren tend to be very protective. And I think that uh, I don't begrudge them that. I, you know, that's their that's their calling. That's their call. That's what they are called to do. And I will allow them to do that and not be judgmental of it. I think that, in as much as um, as histories can be dealt with in a forthright way, and uh, and maintain people's faith, it it benefits us greatly. Well, this, this has been good. I really appreciate um, all that we've talked about so far. Let me just, if I can, wrap up maybe with one final question, if that's okay. Sure. Um, over the past, let's say, three to five years, uh, President Hinckley has been interviewed a few times. I, I believe in the in the Los Angeles Times, um, in... Um, in uh, an article maybe in Time or Newsweek and definitely on Larry King Live where he was asked basically two questions. Um, the first the first question uh, had to do with polygamy uh, and the second question had to do with um, man becoming gods. And as I recall it, um, the polygamy question was basically, you know, what's your stance on polygamy? And, you know, his response was, I, I believe the quote is, um, you know, it's not doctrinal. And the sense was that he really wanted to, well, at least at a minimum, really uh, disassociate uh, today's Mormons from the practice. And, and definitely probably uh, respect the law and make sure that he didn't offer any encouragement to those uh, who are practicing it. Uh, still today, um, and the second and, and the second one about you know um, God being a man and man becoming God, um, you know I believe that the quote was something like, you know I don't know much about it, I don't know that we teach it, I don't know that we emphasize it, and there's a lot of people out there who feel like, you know this wasn't the whole truth, this wasn't the complete truth. Uh, that in the in the polygamy instance, certainly polygamy is doctrinal because it hasn't been renounced. The temporal practice has been halted by force, um, but you know even today people are still being married polygamously in the temple if a previous spouse has died and, and a husband or a wife takes on a you know a second spouse. And so, um, a lot of people feel like it is still doctrinal. And that, and that the full truth wasn't being told, um, especially given the fact that in you know in the, in the 19th century it was taught that polygamy was not only highly recommended but a requirement for the highest degree of the social kingdom. Um, and then back with the man becoming God and or God being a man and man becoming God, that that this was almost sort of a, a desire to not seem heretical to the a Protestant. Christian folks out there who would see these teachings as being completely unacceptable. Yet, 
you know the, the notion of of God being a man has has been taught since the 1800s, I believe, and the notion of men becoming gods is sort of woven into our deepest doctrines, men and women. So, you know, I don't expect you to be able to speak for President Hinckley. I have no interest in trying to trap you or make it sound like, you know, he's being deceitful because I totally don't believe in in um, making those presumptions. But I would be interested if you or Fair have thoughts or comments or ways to help us think about, um, you know, the the image that President Hinckley is trying to convey and the way that he treats those two subjects. Well, you know, I'll, I'll speak for myself probably more than anything here, but uh, you, you bring up two very important issues, and um, I think that one of the underlying issues here is really what is the responsibility of the president of the church in regards to um, the statements that he makes relative to the history of the church in the past and that sort of thing versus what he's trying to emphasize on a on a forward-looking basis for the church and you know on the first instance of polygamy I think clearly he's trying to um, trying to distance the church from that practice if only to encourage members to remain faithful I mean if you look at instances today in Utah where fundamentalists um, and when I mean fundamentalist Mormons come out and actually uh, glob on to the comments and remarks of previous leaders of the church and use that as justification for the practices that today are um, not considered a practice of the church then I think it's wholly appropriate for him to use his judgment to do that now the one thing that you mentioned there is the question of that you know he, his statement something about that I, th I think it's not doctrinal or something along those lines and it really begs the question as to what what by definition is doctrine I mean if you look back in 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 past histories um, the only tribe of the house of Israel that was allowed to have um, to to practice the priesthood was uh, the the Levi the tribe of Levi it's considered the Levitical priesthood and today that is not a restriction so was it doctrinal then yes is it doctrinal today no by the same token polygamy could still be a doctrinal principle that has its roots in in eternal concepts but does not necessarily something that is doctrinally accepted today in the sense that um, it is something that should be practiced and condoned um, that you know the doctrine along with the whole notion of polygamy is basically that it's acceptable when commanded and when we're not commanded whether it be because the laws of the land will not permit it or otherwise then um, it's to be obeyed and so, you're, so, I, so you're sort of taking um, the way he was using the word doctrine to mean what is actively taught and acceptable as the church is currently being governed today that's my understanding of it yes okay that's a yeah. I mean that's a fair interpretation, but there are going to be some who say, you know, but the whole truth is it's still being practiced. It's still believed that it's going to be in effect in the afterlife. So at a minimum, he can say, okay, look, we don't believe in practicing it today, but we certainly are practicing it in the temples, and believe that it will be in full effect in the afterlife. So I mean, I guess he could say that, right? 
Well, I, I suppose so. I, I would be a little bit careful about the characterization of it being practiced in the temples. I think I understand what you mean by by saying that um, by re- referencing the fact that you know if a man is married to a woman and his wife passes away, he could take another woman to the temple and there be sealed to her, and in effect that marriage would um, would result in a polygamous relationship in in the hereafter. Yeah. In that sense, yes. Then then clearly polygamy is still um, is still practiced in that limited sense, but it is not something that is a doctrine that we should go out and practice it, where we should take multiple wives while both are still living. But why not give the full that full? St- you know, I I don't know. I don't expect you to really know. But, well, uh, but I can't speak for President Hinckley. All I can say is that you know I think that when you're in a soundbite world of an interview on national television with Larry King live, you don't necessarily want to muddy the waters with with uh, with too much of the of the nitty gritty details, you know. The, I think the me- the message of emphasis here is that it is not a practice today. That the church indeed is distancing themselves, and from that standpoint, I think that President Hinckley's remarks are probably appropriate. I'm sure that it's a very difficult position to be in, you know, in weighing exactly how much of the detail do you get into in these doctrinal issues versus how much do you kind of keep on the surface level and convey the assurance that that. Polygamy is not a practice of the church today. Yeah, yeah, I totally hear you, and I and I I I totally don't stand in condemnation in any way of President Hinckley, but I I do have friends who feel like there's one set of of dialogue and discourse that happens to the membership of the church, while there's sort of a different set of dialogue and discourse that happens through the PR channels, and there's some who feel like they wish it was the same dialogue. And maybe that's unfair or unrealistic. I, I know that there's milk before meat, and that's probably the best argument against that logic, right? But th- but there are. Can you sympathize with the feeling that that they maybe a purist person might wish that it was the exact same dialogue between the public face and what we say in general conference or you know behind the behind the doors? Oh, I can certainly understand their feelings, and. Um you know, all I can say is is that that's a judgment that President Hinckley, who is infinitely more qualified to make, um, it's his responsibility to make. Yeah. So, what about the what about the second um, issue? Well, the second issue, if if I understand it correctly, was you know a statement made. Um, it was actually debated. There was people that uh, actually wrote letters to President Hinckley's office and to Time Magazine to to kind of clarify it, and uh, you know wherein he made a statement something to the effect relative to um, what would be considered the the concept of deification and people jump on it and say that they don't know that he where President Hinckley said I don't know that um, we teach that I don't know that we emphasize it I don't know much about that or something to that effect and as I recall the the question that was actually asked him was not about deification itself which is uh, uh, doctrine that I think can be pretty uh, substantially defended. Um, I mean, we have many of the early tell, church tell fathers. The, tell the listeners what you mean by what deification means. A deification is a concept that man can become like our Father in heaven. Okay, um, so you're splitting out. You're splitting out sort of two concepts. Tell us what the two concepts are. Well, the two concepts would be there's a there's a an old couplet that uh, was coined. I um, by one of the leaders of the church following Joseph Smith that essentially says as as man now is God once was as 
um, as God now is, man may become. Deification would be the, the latter, the second part of that statement. Men becoming gods. Men becoming like our Father in heaven. And you're and saying that's defensible. I, I believe that that's wholly defensible. Um, I mean, we have many of the church fathers, Arrhenius and Athanasius and Augustine, all of which have made comments that are, you know, substantially similar to that. You know, basically that um, if we've been made sons of gods, then we've also been made gods and things like that. That, uh, you know, Christ came that we could be enabled to be made gods. And there are some limited qualifications that you might want to put around that depending on uh, the the particular doctrinal approach that you're taking, but the I think that there's there's a lot of historical precedence for that concept. Christ Himself said, you know, that um, that commanded us to be therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect, and things like that. So there's there is precedence. There is early church evi evidences that it was taught in the early church. I think the part that seems more heretical to other people is this notion that. God was once less than what he is, like we're diminishing the capability of God and making him less than that by stating that he was once a man. And I think that while there have clearly been teachings in that regard in the church, that it is not something upon which um, you know, our eternal salvation is based. Um, we are here to become like our Father in heaven. The forward portion of that is clearly um, is clearly a doctrine. It was a doctrine that drew me into the church, the whole notion that I could become like my Heavenly Father. I used to always think that if I became God, heck, the last thing I'd want to do if I, if I became perfect was sit up on cloud nine and play harps all day, you know? I mean, my idea of, of um, if I was to progress, my idea of being a, a, an enlightened person would be to help other people become enlightened as well and become more like me. And so I can I believe that that is that portion of it is com is completely defensible. Well, the problem arises, um, at least in in the the debate here, um, was basically where they asked you know the the whole question of um, the teaching was it a teaching teaching of the church today that God the Father was once a man like you and I are, and I think that he his emphasis was to de-emphasize that whole notion of 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 diminishing God because it isn't something that is that is taught it is clearly taught actively in the church today um, that that we can become like our Heavenly Father and that's one of the aims of our and purposes of our existence but the all of the the questions and the complexities surrounding the existence of Heavenly Father and how he may have come to be who he is that is something that is you know a deeper doctrine that is not necessary for our salvation it isn't something that is emphasized I mean I don't know how long it's been since I've heard something like that even discussed um, in any great detail in a priesthood lesson at least to my experience I don't know maybe your experience has been different but uh, you know in that regard I think that the whole notion of of people criticizing President Hinckley for making the statement that, you know, I don't know about that, I don't know that we teach it. I see it more as he was just trying to say, you know, look, that's that's kind of a fuzzy area, this whole thing about how God was. I think if he'd come out and said, do you believe that God can become like, or that man can become like God, I think he would have come out directly and said, absolutely. So, so I, you know, so I can see, I, I, well, first of all, I think the distinction you make between man becoming God I still think many are going to see men becoming God as heretical, probably the majority of Christians. But I, 
I can see where you'd say it's defensible, and I definitely think there are scriptures where, if taken literally, can support that. And I definitely agree there have been past Christian leaders who have thought or believed around that area. But, um, you know, it's it seems if he's saying, if President Hinckley's saying that God once was a man is not necessarily doctrinal, uh, what that sort of does is put him at odds with Joseph Smith. Because I, I think that in the King Follett discourse, he basically said, God, quote, God himself was once as we are now. And and for me, to be honest, I don't I don't have a problem with, with a modern-day prophet overriding an older prophet. Um, I do wish that, that when they did that, they would be explicit about it and, and, and just say, hey, you know what? Brigham Young said this, but, you know, I'm telling you that this is the way it is. But they don't. They just sort of say what the new thing is and, and let the old thing lie. But I do think that Joseph Smith taught that in the King Fall Discourse. So what, what would you say to people who would say those two now are at odds? Well, you know, the the real question that you're bringing up is can, you know, the whole notion of can a latter prophet trump a prior prophet? And if that's the case, then which one was the false prophet? That's one of the big things that gets that gets thrown up uh, quite often. And to be honest with you, they don't have... They don't have to be false prophets. There are um, growth of understanding that's that's taking place within both men. You have to understand the principle of revelation that it's that it's based upon an inquiring. It's based upon reason of your own and a seeking of a of an affirmation from your Father in heaven that the the thing that you're bringing and presenting before Him is true and correct. Um, there clearly were teachings along those lines, and um, I don't think that President Hinckley is attempting to come out and say that those teachings were quote-unquote false I think that what he's saying is that you know it's not at least this is my take on it and I don't want to speak for President Hinckley I, I want to emphasize that very clearly but I don't think that um, that he's trying to say that it's not a teaching I think that he's simply stating that we don't know enough about it to, to make a doctrinal statement and that's okay for me you know um, President Hinckley's understanding of it could be different than what um, the understanding of it was at the time of Joseph Smith and you know by Joseph Smith himself so I understand where people would look at these types of issues and ask themselves you know well which one is right and which one is wrong and the tendency is to pick one that's wrong and then basically from that point forward the church is false or something along those lines at least from the context of those that would criticize I think that um, that that's you know that's an unfair assessment to make it, it is possible for um, a leader of the church to make a mistake and it's possible for someone to correct it it's possible for understandings to improve as time goes on and it's also possible for understandings to diminish Joseph Smith may have known something that we didn't and that President Hinckley doesn't I don't know I can only speculate but I do feel that the statement that President Hinckley made was probably a fair and an accurate one you know I think he was saying look I don't know that we really emphasize it that we teach it you know he wasn't I don't think he was pleading ignorance I think he was being kind of vague and not really knowing how to describe it that was my take on it hmm. I hear where you're coming from I I I, I think uh, I think that's that's reasonable that's a reasonable position I do think there's I, I just think that one thing that I'm learning I guess there's two things I'm learning you know I'm reading rough stone rolling right now by Richard Bushman hmm. and I'm learning that uh, being a prophet isn't as simple 
or as simplistic as we're able to teach it and understand it uh, in Sunday school. And so there are these expectations that basically, you know, the prophet calls up God and says, hey, God, what's the scoop? And then God sort of says, all right, take notes. And, you know, it's clear that it's a lot less simple than that. And, and then would you agree with that? I would agree with that. I think that there's um, that, you know, there's a lot of expectations that people have as far as the performance or the comportment of a prophet that are, are probably misguided. I think of, you know, we, 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 we've kind of coined a phrase that a lot of people expect prophets, to, for example, to be um, to be casino prophets. In other words, they can walk into uh, your average casino as a man's about to roll the dice and declare as he rolls the dice what the numbers are going to be. And, uh, you know, I don't think that that's, that's the way Heavenly Father functions. That's certainly not um, the way I understand that a prophet functions. You know, people expect that... Um, a prophet should have a certain somber comportment. Joseph Smith was criticized continually about being too jovial. He loved to play with the kids. He'd get out and wrestle with them and stuff like that. There's there's a lot of perceptions that people have as to what a prophet should or should not be, and you know I think a good many of them are actually incorrect. To me, what qualifies a person to be a prophet in the LDS Church is that they are worthy and entrusted to hold the keys of priesthood authority to exercise the um, priesthood and the ordinances of the gospel to enable us to be able to return to the presence of our Father in heaven and become like him. In that sense, then, it's a much more limited role. President Hinckley basically said that you know his role as a prophet is to be a teacher, to be a defender of the truth, um, to be an example. And in that sense, um, the role of a prophet now becomes you know, even even more clearly defined, it actually becomes more human in my, in my view. I think that it's, people have this tendency to think, like you s- described it, that the prophet's a teletype machine, and he plugs in his modem, and all of a sudden he starts getting verbatim information, and it's not that at all. My experience is, doctrinally from the scriptures, and from my own personal experience, and from what I've read and been able to glean from histories of the church, is that Revelation comes through a process of seeking, thinking it out in your mind, coming to a conclusion of your own, bringing it to Heavenly Father, and being humble and open to reception at that point where you're willing to accept the answer that Heavenly Father's going to offer you or going to give you whatever whatever you're capable of receiving. And so it has a lot to do with our individual capacities. Our humanness doesn't go away. Um, as you know, and I, I think it's unfair for us to expect that as you know, we ourselves are called into positions of leadership and otherwise, you know, our, we don't expect our humanness to go away. Why should we expect the humanness of a prophet to go away as well? Right. Yeah, and that and that takes me sort of to the the fi- and this this kind of brings our conversation full circle in a nice way. You you mentioned earlier on that. For most of the people that Fair deals with, uh, that they're struggling because of some type of breach of trust, and I think I think probably the probably the biggest thing that we all face, you and I and everyone who's sort of in this field of Mormon studies face, is just this chasm that we talked about earlier. This because if you if you surveyed, I'll, I'll just tell you this for sure: if you surveyed Mormons today. Uh, active active Mormons, and you ask them two questions. These are just two examples. Number one, 
is polygamy doctrinal? They would say yes. And if you ask them, uh, um, was God a man and will men become gods? They would emphatically say yes. So to them, to Mormons, there would, there, there would be no question because that's how it's been simplistically taught. Now, I don't fault the brethren for that. I don't, I don't fault. I, I have a very realistic view now. But it's, it's very easy for someone to sort of take everything at face value, how they've been taught, how they've been culturally raised, and just be very disappointed at the chasm between what they thought their whole lives and then what they discover on the internet or in a Larry King interview. And I wonder how we can bridge that gap so that, so that the right beliefs and feelings and perceptions can match what the reality is at the highest level and so that so that um what the facts that we know about joseph smith for example are are the ones that are taught and there's no chasm between how he's portrayed in sunday school and what richard bushman writes in his book how can we get there how can we get to the point where the average membership knows the basic facts about joseph smith knows the basic facts about church history, knows what really is doctrinal and what isn't, especially when the church doesn't seem like they want to give us a definitive canon on what is doctrinal and what isn't. They give us the scriptures, but the scriptures are open to so much interpretation. You know, where does that leave us? So that, you know, that's my goal, actually, and that's a challenge I want to issue to farm, to fair, and ask you to make your final comment about is what can we do to eliminate the chasm between what people's perceptions are in the church and what reality is? Well, I think the, 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 the biggest thing that we can do is to help the individuals themselves stand on their own two feet. I mean, I, I, I seem to recall, I don't remember the exact quote, Brigham Young made some statements basically that, you know, if any man believes a doctrine because I said it, he's a fool. Something along those lines where he was basically saying that we should go and find out for ourselves. Don't Basically, don't follow me just because of my position as the prophet. Follow me because you've sought to gain an understanding and, an, and, and a confirmation that the things I'm teaching are true and that therefore your practice should conform to the, to the guidance that I'm giving. And um, do, you hear, a, do a, you hear that message being emphasized today? What do you mean? That, like that, a general conference, how often do you hear, think for yourself, don't just take our word for it, um, you know, make sure that you really have a conviction of the things we're teaching. Don't follow us unless you really feel good about it. Do you, do you hear that today? Well, I don't hear, I, actually no, I don't hear that a lot. Um, it's been some time since I've, I've read it in discourse, but you know, the, I don't think that that diminishes the value of the recommendation. I think that you know, we do need to help individuals become stronger. And if you look at the hierarchy of the things you need to focus on, if you're a church leader and you need to help people, and you're dealing with a worldwide church that has that is struggling with all different levels of morality and cultural practice that that in some t some ways conflict, in some ways um, you know propels uh, people along the path of of conformity to the doctrines and the teaching of the church. I think that when you're when you're running a church of that nature, it's very difficult to, on the one hand, um, say, "Look, 
here's the way it is. I'm a defender of the truth. This is the way it needs to be, and this is how you should practice. Versus, by the way, and now that I've said that, you know, don't listen to anything I say. Go get your own confirmation from it. You know, there's it's a it's a dichotomy that I don't know how easy it is going to be to to um, to reconcile, and I I don't know that the chasm that you speak of is easily is easily bridged. I think that what we're going to find is is that as individuals themselves mature spiritually that they will become better adept at understanding the principles and and being able to adhere to them and the brethren will then be able to be more liberal and open even in the way in which they teach us um, it's you know there's a milk and a meat issue here you can't you can't kind of speak all things to all people at all times you know it's the, the old uh, quote I think it was Lincoln that said you can please some of the people all of the time and all the people some of the time you can't please all the people all the time and from a doctrinal standpoint I think it's very difficult to give everybody the same the same satisfaction we, we've had conversations within FAIR some of the members of that participate in FAIR have, have raised the issue of um, the 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 way that our Sunday schools are run you know that you've got people that are very well versed very well read in in the church history and that sort of thing and they're sitting down trying to put together a lesson and being encouraged to kind of stick to the lesson manual and the the items in the lesson manual are extremely basic um, in some regards and so you've got some of the, the the members that go out and they stand in the hall or they read their own book and this sort of thing because you know the emphasis is on the basics you, you do have a dichotomy here where you've got some people that have progressed further and I don't know that you can mix it maybe you know, something that the church might see fit to do at, at a later date would be to have an advanced kind of um, gospel doctrine in in uh, on Sundays, that sort of thing. Um, I think that the emphasis is going to, but that's got its own dangers. You know, you start to have an advanced one. Now everybody wants to go to the advanced one, and it becomes elitist or separatist, yeah. or you know, all this kind of thing. So it's it's a tough one, and I don't know that it's one that's easily done. Um, I will tell you that I think that. The, the one thing of all the all the struggles that the brethren have to deal with is is trying to help people um, live their lives in a way that their practices their daily walk is in conformity with the gospel of Jesus Christ and some of these other doctrinal issues are less important um, even some of the historical issues are less important they take a backseat to that that's not to say that they're not important that we shouldn't have a means for people to learn them and they do have a means to learn them we have wonderful institutes of religion we have Brigham Young University we have you know uh, basically institutions of higher learning that people can go to and can study these things out but in terms of what the church is focused on and what it should be focused on in my opinion is helping people come unto Christ and to live a Christ-like life and those teachings that support that should be should take first priority and that in itself may invite in part some of this chasm um, that people experience when you know they they as they begin to learn some of the uh, more detailed elements of the church's history and teachings yeah yeah okay well I can see where you're I can see where you're coming from there let, let me just I had this really interesting experience uh, just two weeks ago, and I, I think maybe it would be interesting to end on this note. I walked into Deseret Book here in Logan, and uh, I, 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 I was almost taken back as I walked in the door. There were like 500 um, books of, of Rough Stone Rolling by Richard Bushman. 
I mean, stacks and stacks, tall stacks, you know, up to my belly, stack after stack after stack of this rough stone rolling book on sale, prominently displayed. Um, and I'm like, oh, okay, you know, Bushman, he's pretty benign. That's not a really bold move, you know. He's a devout member, and I'm sure the book's, you know, I'm sure it tells a blemish here or there. But, you know, so I, I bring this book home, and I start going through it. And, you know, he mentions that, you know, I think he mentions that Joseph Smith drank wine, you know, the night before his martyrdom. He mentions that the watch that John Taylor was wearing didn't actually get shot, but instead, um, you know, hit a ledge and, and got smashed that way. In other words, that the story about the bullet wasn't necessarily, you know, the right way that it happened. He mentions that um, uh, he tells the whole Masonic Lodge thing, doesn't pull any punches, the whole Nauvoo Expositor thing. He tells all about the gold digging and the money digging and the peepstone. And and I was just totally floored on the chapter of the translation of the Book of Mormon. Um, in the heading of the chapter, the very first quote you see is the is the quote from Emma that says, Joseph used to put a peepstone in a hat and stick his face in the hat and would translate that way. And I'm just shaking my head, you know, because it's true. You hear a lot of anti-Mormons or ex-Mormons or people frustrated with the church or even liberal Mormons. And I hate labels, but I'm going to use them anyway because I don't know any better way to say it. But you still hear accusations saying the church is hiding things. The church is dishonest. The church, you know, isn't upfront and candid. But, you know, I can't see how this Bushman book isn't anything other than a monumentous event, a monumental event in the church making a giant leap forward in openness. And I, I have to believe that the people at the church reviewed this book before Deseret Book agreed on promoting it, that somebody read it, that they know what's in it. They're not fools. They wouldn't promote it to such a degree. You know, I just, I'm just wondering whether you see it the same way I do and whether, you know, you have any final words about openness and the future as it relates to the church and its history and culture and stuff. Well, I think as I said earlier, you know, this is just evidence of what great lengths we'll go to to hide our history. You know, we put it in books in Deseret Bookstore and, you know, put it there for people to read. Um you know, the, the, what you're bringing up is a very interesting point. I think that, I don't know that it's a, that the church is becoming more open as much as the information is um, is just simply being gathered and being more easily presented, perhaps. Um, I know that, for example, I, I recall that uh, during this last general conference, the BYU broadcast, at least the portion that we received, had some, um, had had a program running in between the two sessions that was because of Joseph Smith's birthday was going through a number of the events in the early history of the church and they came right out and they they addressed they they brought up a number of the issues the the gold seeking and or the 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 money digging and all this sort of thing i mean i was kind of taken aback by that as as well i thought oh my goodness you, you know you wouldn't have thought that the church would typically um go out and make you know make that openly known this was put out by BYU which is clearly church affiliated um 
that's you know that to me was was I was pleasantly surprised to have seen that not because of um, you know I felt like the church was making some kind of a turnaround but just that the information's getting out there I think it you know that type of thing coming out from the church will help it'll help inoculate people in the sense that it won't be some strange thing that they hadn't heard you know I think that the church has had a tendency to give primary um, level messages on a, I don't know if it's a PR front, or, but on, a, on an initial basis, you know, the fundamental principle is Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon by the gift and power of God. Well, does that mean a peepstone? Does that mean a Urim and Thummim? Is a peepstone any less uh, mysterious to, to an outsider than is a Urim and Thummim? I don't think so. You know, that's at least my opinion. And so, you know, there's a lot of things about the history of the church that um, that don't necessarily aren't aren't problematic when you understand the circumstances around it but it's not necessarily the thing that you put forward first and I think the fact that these things are coming out by respected individuals um, you know I've got tremendous respect for Bushman I'm, I've uh, recently purchased his book and by the way I picked up my copy um, I had I purchased two copies and the one that I got first I actually picked up from Barnes and Noble hmm. um, and it was sitting there was a stack of about uh, 30 or 40 copies in Barnes and Noble and so for you know for me it was um, and you're you know, in California right and I'm in California yeah so it's you know it's not as it's not as per, you know the, the 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 church membership is still strong here but it's not anything like it is from a saturation standpoint of membership in Utah but you know I think that um, that the church really I think it's a false accusation the church hides from its history does it emphasize um, the elements of it that are more problematic that take 10 minutes to explain versus you know the 10 second um, you know soundbite that's positive no I, I don't think that the church does and it depends on the audience that it's talking to but it's never hidden its doctrine it's never hidden its teachings it's never hidden its history and you know um, for the most part I think that it's to the church's credit that most of the information if not pretty much all of it that is used against us really comes from the church's own researchers, our own history, and our own own documents made available to the public. And I'm I'm glad to see that things like the Bushman book is getting out there and that um, the program such as the one that, that aired between the sessions of conference was open about many of the elements of the early history of the church that um, is not as familiar to many people. Very good. Well, um, I before I wrap up, I'm done asking my questions. Is there anything you want to say to our audience? Do you want to bear your testimony? Do you want to give parting words? Or you feel like uh, you've talked way longer than you ever wish you had? <laughs> well, I'm sure I've talked more than I've than than people are. You know, their attention span is allowed. Um, so I'll I'll just say thank you very much for letting me come on. And if uh, you know if if there's anybody out there that's listening that uh, that thinks that there's there's reason for doubt, I would tell them that there's reason to, for faith and reason to believe. Very good. Well, um, I am with you. I agree on that point. I'm for faith. So um, with that, uh, John Lynch, I want to thank you uh, very much for coming on Mormon Stories. I think we're going to have to break this up into two or three episodes but there's no harm in that. I think there's enough good content here to to value people's time, at least for some people. Um, I want to remind our uh, listeners to check out um, FAIR, the Foundation for Apologetic Information and Research. 
you can locate them at fairlds.org up on the internet. Um, so thanks, John, for coming on. You're very welcome, and thank you. And um, I'd just like to conclude, and again, thank you for listening to Mormon Stories. Please go up to our blog site at mormonstories.org and provide your comments and feedback. Uh, engage in a dialogue around the things we discussed. We'd also love to have you um, tell us what you like and don't like about uh, these programs. Um, also, if you have any ideas on future guests you'd like to listen to, please let us know. Um, we'd love to hear from you. And most of all, we'd like to encourage you to uh, keep tuning in and uh, keep the faith, of course. And um, we hope to hear from you again. Thanks a lot, and uh, we'll see you next time.